0: The Clintons rebranded the Democratic Party. How much of a price are we still paying for that? I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. What's going on? He's not breathing. Can you get a pulse? Barely. Call a code. Get Nambia back from the nurse's station. Heart's still working, means synapses are still firing. We just need to get a message through. Prosperity for the few, the rights of U.S. corporations to extract from the land of Central America and exploit the people of Central America. There's a huge
1: gap between public opinion and public policy. People don't feel that they can do very much. I speak tonight for the dignity of man.
0: It's all remarkably clear in 2022 what and that the Republicans are. They eagerly lie prostrate before their entertainer king. They know quite well the exceptional political power of fear to drum up hatred of the frightening other, be that a feminist, a gay or trans person, someone with darker skin, or anyone but a straight, white, uh, aggressively old-school masculine male. And that leaves a lot of us who aren't them. The far-right voice of the Trumpists is clear, but where, oh, where are the Democrats? As we head into the fall elections, the right-wing flag flies high on the poll, and people are saluting. Democrats, if we have no identity for people to see, how can we attract people? How can they vote for our party? For the very sake of democracy itself, with a party determined to destroy democracy— Are there powerful Democrats in the party that share much of the blame? Has the party become so afraid of its own shadow that we cling nervously to some illusory center that doesn't seem to work? Well, sometimes it does. We'll get into that. How do we get this way? And are there signs within the Democratic Party that we may be willing to at last stand for our morals in face of this right-wing anti-democratic onslaught? Now, people who are not party insiders or camp followers may never have heard of the DLC, the Democratic Leadership Council. But the DLC, many of us think, is the pivotal point of perhaps the most radical change in the history of the American Democratic Party. In her new book, Left Behind, The Democrats' Failed Attempt to Solve Inequality, our guest today, author Lily Geismer, offers Democrats a chance to reflect and learn quickly so that the general public may be better able to answer if asked, what is the Democratic Party and what does it stand for? Thank you so much for being with us, uh, uh, Lily. Oh,
1: thank you so much for inviting me.
0: Well, I recently had the pleasure of reading Michael Kazin's new book, What It Took to Win and interviewing him on a recent Keeping Democracy Alive show. It's about the history of the Democratic Party, and his thesis is that our lasting successes over the last nearly two centuries uh, resulted from a widespread perception that we are the party of what he calls moral capitalism. You wanted plutocracy and no moral tether? Well, the Republicans were your party, but working people knew they had a dependable advocate in the Democratic Party. That's changed a little bit. Well, again, we have Lily Geismer as our guest today. She's professor of history at Claremont McKenna College. Her new book tracks Bill Clinton and the DLC's enthusiastic efforts to apply market-based thinking to the intractable structural problems of US political economy. It all began in 1984 with the formation of the Democratic Leadership Council. And to refresh memories, that's a long time ago, the celebrity high in the saddle, celebrity actor, Ronald Reagan, defeated a traditional Democrat, Walter Mondale, in 1984, who was not a TV star, but I think might have made an excellent president. Reagan was the most right-wing president until that point, and his racially tinged war on the poor is remembered for its use of the image of the welfare queen. Since Walter Mondale lost rather convincingly in 1984 did that spark the formation of the DLC uh, Lily did they did they too feel that demonizing the poor had become a good political strategy
1: well the, the formation of the DLC and the sort of what I track in the book actually predates 1984 election and really starts a decade earlier with the group that's known as the Watergate babies um, and so it's this group of Democrats who come into office in the aftermath of the um after Watergate, and that's actually a—it's this a false claim for kind of what they're, um, what they were kind of unified against. It was less Richard Nixon, but more the kind of direction they saw the Democratic Party going in, and wanting to shift it to the the party sort of feeling that it was too um, beholden to what they thought of as special interests, too focused on bureaucracy, um, and um, and kind of big government, and wanting other kinds of solutions. And these are people like Tim Worth and Gary Hart. They're later joined by um, by Al Gore um, and Bill Bradley. um, And that that group um, is really critical to kind of setting the tone for this kind of bigger shift that happens in the Democratic Party. Um, They later get known as the Atari Democrats for their focus on more sort of high tech solutions to problems, So, famously in relationship to the um, the, uh, video game company, um, Atari, um, and really sort of see that the, um, that there, there needs to be new, um, new th- solutions, um, to larger problems. Um, in many ways there, this group of people, I mean, I think that the 1984 campaign is critical. Um, but what's interesting is that actually it's a, it's a three party. It's a very contested democratic primary with three different candidate with three candidates. Um, and you have a candidate who is sort of the, um, Precursor to the DLC in the in the race um, with Gary Hart running in the '84 um, election, he does quite well. He's the front runner at, um, for every p- brief period of time. You also have Mondale and um, and Jesse Jackson. So it's like three d- sort of different directions the Democratic Party could have gone in in the '1984 election. Um, the group of people who come to fi- come to form the DLC, um, you ha- it's three different kind of it's or two different really tributaries. One is people from the um, the kind of uh, Watergate baby group who are primarily in Congress um, and um, in the Senate, um, and then um, and they're led by um, actually a staffer named Al-, Al Fromm who becomes the executive director of the DLC, um, who who at actually at the 1984 convention have a meeting with a group of southern Repu- southern I keep saying Republicans sorry that was a Freudian slip um, southern um, southern moderate. Democratic governors um, who feel that the party should shift its tactics more towards trying to capture um, voters sort of in the center and in the mainstream. So kind Mm -hmm. of moderate suburbanites who they think are shifting over to the Republican Party. So in in um, they in right after the election in early January 1985, this group comes um, announces the formation of the Democratic Leadership Council, and their real goal is to shift the direction of the Democratic Party um, as a kind of um, in both its kind of electoral strategy um, and its kind of ideological orientation, and that um, that is. Sort of where it comes from, so it is in kind of response to to Mondale. Partic- one of the things that they're particularly concerned about with Mondale is that he's too beholden to um, special interests, especially to the labor movement, mm. um, and that the Democratic Party, for the Democratic Party to have a future going forward, it needs to kind of um, it needs to kind of break ties from those kinds of tight bonds.
0: Wow, the special interests that you and they referred to, labor unions. Interesting to see them as special interests, as something outside the Democratic mainstream and having too much power within the Democratic Party. Uh, nowadays, it seems like we're, we've are we been paying a price for losing the support of, of working people uh, for, for quite some time. I mean, it, it seems like maybe before the DLC, you would know better that the party... Uh, especially under the Clintons, it seemed, really turned their back on, on labor unions, calling them special interests and, and uh, what happened to that rather large block of voters. And one of the things that Michael Kazin talked about in his book was the necessity of, of movements, of grassroots energy uh, that could then be applied to the party. The party itself, the candidates itself, it, it, that doesn't generally uh it, it create the passion and the enthusiasm that groups people in the uh, so-called special interests uh, can can fire up how how did it affect i mean clearly labor unions felt like they were being shunned and and how do you think that electorally affected uh, democrats in the last 15-20 years or so
1: well, it's a huge question and there are multiple parts to it. So I think part of the issue is that it's not. And so this goes to kind of what I look at in the book is that it's, it's both about um, it's both about electoral strategy and it's also about um, a, a particular focus on political economy. So it's, a, it's an idea that the kind of labor unions are dragging the um, the party down in terms of its electoral strategy by being sort of too closely connected um, to to labor. And so there's a deliberate strategy about moving away from labor. And, and I, I will bracket the question of uh, grassroots groups themselves are really important too. Um, but the other question is that it's also labor is a drag on, um, um, is, is part of the nation's economic woes. And so this goes to them sort of defining themselves as a party. Democrats or sort of their particular focus in terms of policy on, um, on sort of bolstering up what comes to be known as the new economy and especially the sectors of trade. Tech and finance, and those are all sectors that are um, that are heavily non-unionized. Um, and so, part of it is that the for the, the union having unionized work is kind of a drag on sort of the nation's economic growth as well. So it's a dual part strategy. So I think on that part, union on both sides, unions felt um, quite. I mean, we're sort of hostile. I think there's a bigger question as to um, and this can we can get into the weeds on what happens during the Clinton era um, about the labor movement's particular kind of relationship to the Democratic Party um, and a willingness to kind of not um, to oppose oppose Clinton's policies on particular issues, but not actually create a kind of unified opposition. Um, and I think the other question that's important is the difference of I mean part of the reason that there was opposition to the labor labor um, was the kind of big bureaucratic compo- issues like the the big AFL CIO and, and people like George Meany or Lane Kirkland's like close relationship to Democratic Party officials. Um, I think the question around grassroots movement is a little bit different. Is a little bit different, um, but I think part of this is one of the things about the DLC is that it was primarily it was overwhelmingly. Up a group that was um, that was run and for Democratic Party officials, so it's a very elite and sort of top, uh, like top-down group, as opposed to kind of grassroots movements, which are much more kind of bottom-up in their orientation. Clearly, officially bottom-up in their orientation.
0: Yeah, and I think we we've seen that the bottom-up is what works really. If it's not bottom-up, uh, it does. You got to have the votes. I mean, there's money. But the the campaign money, the whole point of the campaign money is to get votes. If you don't have a lot of numbers, you lose. And and the Democratic Party is trying to figure out where we are, it seems now. And
1: well, the other person, but, I mean, I'll say the other thing is less, it's also the other the other kind of clear foil to the DLC and who becomes their kind of clear kind of opponent, um, especially and, and my book looks at this in depth, is Jesse Jackson. Um, and Jesse Jackson's particular kind of a campaign, which is very much about kind of targeting, um, aligning with grassroots movements, but also uh, also speaking to marginalized groups and people who are not voting. And I think what happens after the um, after it's actually after the nineteen eighty eight election, the DLC, um, where Dukakis, Mike Dukakis loses. Mm-hmm. The DLC um, issues a kind of post mortem that's called the politics of evasion. And it's kind of a it's a play by it's a playbook for where the party's political strategy should go going forward. Um, And one of their big things in that strategy is that the part that first of all, that the party should focus on presidential elections, but also that it should focus not on trying to appeal to um, marginalized groups or potential who they call non-voters and Instead, focus on um, trying to win over kind of more moderate suburbanites who've been drifting over to the Democratic to the Republican Party, and I think this is this big question that actually has been playing itself out again and again in elections, and, and is a, a really important tension. Um, and the party, in many ways, I mean, that's what happens under Clinton is to is goes with the approach of going after these kinds of swing voters, um, and that's the way you win elections. and it has, their oftentimes short term benefits to that approach, but I think what you to your point, the real problem is that it's, um, it's, it's created this, it's, it's prevented the Democratic Party from creating a really stable coalition. Um, and I think the kinds of coalitions that emerged, and there, was, there, was, there were contradictions, contradictions and tensions with the New Deal coalition, but it was a more stable coalition than what the Democratic Party has been able to assemble since the 1990s.
0: Wow, there's a lot there, a lot to talk about. And uh, the the time in this, the point in our American history right now where democracy itself is being threatened and the the uh, clarity of the Republican Party versus the uh, nebulousness of the Democratic Party is something of concern to many of us. And, and for those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, the show is keeping democracy alive. I guess today... Is author Lily Geismer, whose new book is Left Behind The Democrats' Failed Attempt to Solve Inequality. And interesting about the focus on presidential. I am here in New Hampshire and an active Democrat, and all across the country, it does seem one of the big problems for the Democratic Party is our focus on the presidential races. The, the the Tea Party back in 2010 on the Republican side knew you got to focus at the lower level, at the school board, at the city council, that kind of level. That level, the local and state elective offices are paying a high price. And a lot of activists, and I tend to agree with them on this, say that the focus on the presidential is dumb. It's really, really hurting the Democratic Party because we need to build, as we've said, from the ground up, and y'all, you mentioned uh, the New Deal. Uh, Republicans, ever since Franklin Roosevelt, have opposed the New Deal. They've defined themselves in opposition to the New Deal and the Great Society programs. And is this something that the DLC also bought into?
1: It's, well, it's slightly more. It's slightly more complicated, and I don't think. I mean, part of the one of the big goals of my book is that there's often this way people equate kind of the Clinton era with just kind of and, and even at the time when the DLC started, they decided that they were just sort of Republicans alike um, or um, and I think that that's not actually a fair representation that it's it's that there are ways in which there he distinctions between what this kind of um, wing of the Democratic Party, Believed and what they and their their programs um, and the kind of Republican parties they weren't just trying to the, the classic way to think about this and so um, right. is the idea during the Clinton era um, one of the strategies was called triangulation that you sort of Got steal me. just steal from the right um, so the DLC the especially the Watergate babies actually ran on this idea of kind of and the DLC going into the late eighties and early nineties like sort of ran on this idea. Of, um, of kind of the, the way that they t- t- said it was that the sort of solutions of the 30s are not going to solve the problems of the 80s or the 90s um, and that we need to find new mechanisms. but I think some of it is sort of believing in the same like ideals of the, of, of the New Deal. Um, they're actually more critical of the great society um, and um, and some of the kind of big um, the big sort of um, great uh-huh. society, Programs, um, many of them, interestingly, it's Al Fromm actually got a start um, on, on a war on poverty program. Um, and um, that was a kind of a formative experience. And so believe in certain, some of the ideals, but believe some of the mechanisms such to to, um, to address kind of ideas of like opportunity for people um, and various different other, um, and kind of empowerment are not done through the kind of programs that the Great Society, that the Great, what, what the war on poverty allowed for. And believe in kind of um, using. More, as I talk in my book, more market-based market-based solutions. Um, to but to get at some of the same kind of um, ends as the New Deal. So they still believe in an idea of government. I think mean, that's a, a critical distinction between the kind of Republican um, and especially the Republicans who emerge in the sort of Reagan era. Um, but there's they believe in sort of government playing a role, but it's a slightly different role. And they still believe in kind of I- the ideals of equality and opportunity that are sort of at the, at the heart of, of how, of, um, and, and sort of um, individual rights and individual freedom, which are at the heart mm-hmm. of kind of the New Deal. But they believe in different mechanisms for getting there. It is interesting, and this is something we, we might talk about later. I mean, one of the things I that I look at in the book, I mean, is that, there, is that, um, that ultimately, actually, a lot of what, however, like a lot of what Reagan wanted to what is sort of attributed to Reagan actually gets accomplished under Clinton. So things like welfare reform and Glass-Steagall. And so a lot of the kind of those ideas, but there's different, they have different purposes or different intent in why they're doing it than, um, than the Republicans do.
0: Interesting, different intent. And, and I've heard, I've heard it said from people that uh, yeah, Clinton accomplished a lot of what Reagan was not able to accomplish and I, I think about FDR a lot more than I do LBJ's Great Society programs, but as you were talking about them, the housing programs that they had under the Great Society, it was called under the War on Poverty, but they disempowered people who lived in those giant housing projects. And there was a lot of failure there, for sure. And that's that's very interesting that uh, at least some Democrats picked up on that. There was sort of aversion of of the New Deal, but uh, it it didn't you know it didn't exactly empower people for sure, and you say the DLC was a very much was very much an ideological project. It was very much about ideas. In of quote, what were those ideas? W- what about the direction of the party and U.S. liberalism did they seek to change, and why? And this is going to be a big question. Was it in any sense this new ideas, this ideological project? Was it related to what Michael Kazin called moral capitalism, or was it a real divergence from that? Do you think?
1: Um, I think that there. I mean, I um, so I, a couple of different things on that point. So, I mean, their sure. big idea was the um, that. You can that you want to expand opportunities not government and the way to do that is through um, is through free markets um, or market oriented growth um, and I think especially the sort of this commitment to growth um, and growing the economy will help people and the way I think about this I mean that, the New Deal also means that there's this like the new Deal was was also about kind of bolstering capitalism but it believed in um, in kind of you create you you create growth um, and so that's like the sort of new Deal and its legacy. And then you have compensatory welfare programs to help people in need. Um, the kind of DLC approach is to kind of, is to combine those two things. And so that you can actually use the market um, and mar- and um, to, to take this the place of what, what kind of a traditional welfare state once did. So a lot of what the kind of New Deal programs did, um, you can bring in the the market and the private sector to do that, and my book itself tracks a lot of these programs and how they become implemented. Housing is a critical a critical example of this, um, and so in the this gets implemented in during the Clinton era. Um, and it's actually one of the programs I think is most important, but gets less attention than some of the other things that, w- that occurred during the Clinton years. Mm. Um, but as the, um, is the shift away from um, public housing, which is a very traditional New Deal program um, of kind of, of a federal public housing program that you replace it with the program Hope Six, which is a market uh, mixed income market-based orientated program. And so mm-hmm. the idea is like, there's still public housing but it's it's sort of implemented through the private sector, and that's kind of the approach that um, that um, the DLC looked at. Also, believed in kind of using um, mechanisms of the market to make government itself more efficient. So that's another kind of key part of their philosophy. So they really believe this idea of like sort of reinventing government to kind of be more um, more sort of um, more sort of solution oriented, account accountable, um, kind of using what makes what how markets are more efficient. And applying that to government, the question to the, um, to the moral, the idea of moral capitalism. Yeah. So there is a, there is a, there is a component of that. Um, and this belief and kind of, um, in, but I, I look a lot at the kind of the, there I sort of identify their philosophy as this idea of doing well by doing good. Um, and this notion that like, I think they, they, the DLC and Clinton's like, this is the thing I, and you said it's about ideas that I really wanted to prove in my book is that there's often this kind of notion that this was all, all of the kind of policy side and all the kind of ideology was all just strategy to win and to beat the Republicans. And, and so that's why they sort of adopted these kind of market-based thinking. And what I want to show is that they actually really believed in this and hmm. believed in the power of capitalism and the market to do good. Um, And that those things could kind of do some of the work that I think that Michael Kazin defines as moral capitalism. Um, And so there's a way, I mean, I think that there's, they're building on that idea, which is at the heart of kind of the larger liberal project of kind of this, this notion of kind of making capitalism, um, bringing out the kind of morality, the, the moral dimensions of what capitalism can do um and kind of fusing those two ideas together which is an um, in some ways like there there's ways of thinking about them as odds so they still have that component to them but it's far more on the kind of market um and private sector side than the kind of new deal or progressive era um approach that um that um Kazin examines in
0: his book very interesting and i, I was just thinking about how uh, Franklin Roosevelt, uh Figured that the economy, the free market economy, must be tethered to, must serve the common good. And it sounds like, if I'm hearing it right, these uh, DLCers, the Clinton Democrats felt like government has to work with the private sector, and that's how good can happen. That's how uh, we can really accomplish these good things we want to do. So it's not so much one over the other. It's, well, maybe it is. Free market over government. Your thoughts?
1: No, I don't think that that's. True. I don't. I don't think it's free market over government. And I also think it's really important so that um, to recognize that the New Deal itself was was. I mean, the liberals, and the Democratic Party, have long have long. I mean, since the New Deal, believed in public-private partnerships. That's a critical component of how the right. mechanisms through which a lot of New Deal programs were delivered. So, I think that it it actually extends at those ideas. And one of the things that I wanted to look at um, in the book I mean, in some ways it's sort of looking at the um, the Democratic version of neoliberalism, and that like there's many things that we think of as neoliberal that actually have its roots more in the New Deal than in the kind of um, Milton Friedman, Milton Palorin Society um, way of thinking about kind of the market, um, and so some of those ideas are actually there. And I don't think that they believed in it's not the free market over government um, necessarily. I think that they believe that those two things can um, can co coexist. And I think the idea that you you're using the market to do some of the traditional work that, that government programs once did. And I, you know, in my book, I'm quite critical of this approach um, or sort of looking, I want to understand, I wanted to understand it and take it seriously, but also to understand the kind of consequences of doing that, Uh that you, that, that, um, that market, that markets cannot do what government cannot do the same work that government did. They cannot create the kind of same full social safety net that um, that you know, programs like the New Deal um, were able to accomplish.
0: Yeah, it seems pretty uh, clear to me. I mean, we have a mixed economy here. It used to be called the vital center where Eisenhower was as president domestically, where Bernie has been, that uh, we need social programs where the free market doesn't. Where there are gaps left over, I mean, for the most obvious, fire departments, uh, schools, police, road repair, infrastructure, free market doesn't seem to be really up to the task that there has to be some involvement by the government. And so I think what you're saying is that the, the Clinton wing of the party, the DLC, kind of agreed with that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they, they don't believe in, it's not, it's not a fully privatized program. I um, mean, one of the, the examples I look at in the book, actually, that's, that's a really interesting one, is charter schools. Ah. Um, and the DLC was one of the early proponents of charter schools. And, um, and at that point, I mean, the, the Republicans were pushing vouchers, and that would be a more privatized system. So what you're describing of like, you contract out schools, you also contract out Like fire services and various other things, and then um, and the one of the things that the um, DLCers liked about um, the. About charter schools is that it's still within the public sector. So it's huh. still sort of, it's still within, I mean, you still are, you, it's charters are innovation to that, I mean, in, innovating, but we still within the, still as a public good and, pu- and believe in public education as a public good. And I think that sort of shows their type of approach. So there are ways that they're kind of using market solutions. You're bringing in kind of private, some private contractors to do, to do that work, but it's still sort of as a, as something that is, that is public.
0: Yeah, we they've come a long way. I mean, they're still there. There's still still controversy over charter schools, but uh, yeah, there's always controversy in politics and government anyway. Um, and you brought up the topic of neoliberalism. And much of the world, especially the developing world, has come to despise neoliberalism. I think they have a much better understanding of the term than we do. And neoliberalism eagerly accommodates both plutocracy and imperialism by the richest over the poorest. Now, neoliberalism, in my mind, is not in the least liberal. What is the Clinton DLC take on neoliberalism? And do they not see how it has affected the global economy for other than wealthy nations? Do they not see the world opinion as something that matters? Maybe they don't.
1: I, I wouldn't say that. I mean, I think there's there's several different things to think about. I mean, so one of the things that's interesting is that actually the group of who are the become the part one wing of the DLC are the first people to be called neoliberal. And for that they actually embrace the term as kind of new liberals and just sort of to affirm this particular kind of project, but they were sort of moving in um, liberalism in a different direction. I think the way it's been described, and so I mean, the, the, and I think that that's true that like it's, there's, um, one of my colleagues who does Latin American history said like this is like, I can't, does understand the, this new kind of, um, interest in neoliberalism in the US because like if you're from, if you're um, a <laughs> study or from Latin America, this is what's been going on for, um, 100 years, for almost 50 years. I mean, if not longer. And yeah. so that's another thing too. I mean, that there's a way. And I think also like, um, you know, I think for um many communities of color in the United States, like there's nothing one of my other friends and colleagues is like, there's nothing new about neoliberalism, there's always been in this kind of position of austerity and, and vulnerability and predation. So many of these kind of categories that we think of as as neoliberal. Um I think that so the um, the way in which um, and I I do think there's a component of this that is the kind of and I call this the democratic version of neoliberalism um, that is committed to this idea of kind of so that the heart of the sort of that markets can bring um, increased freedom Mm. and especially a focus, a strong focus on. And that's really what um, at the bare bones of what neoliberalism, the idea of neoliberalism is and limited government. Um, such to do that, you kind of the, the market itself. and really think the goal is not is not necessarily, if you look back to kind of what Hayek is talking about, is not necessarily about sort of wealth um, but um, but is about kind of this, these notions of freedom. And that is in in, in many ways tied to kind of at, at its broadest level what this particular kind of neoliberalism is um, that you can kind of achieve particular you can help people through the market through markets. Um, the to the question around sort of how they think about the global south I mean they're deeply invested in kind of I mean this is under Clinton is when you see this kind of large-scale commitment um, to globalization and especially kind of opening up trade um, and I think that there's mm-hmm. I, I look in the book at this many of these programs uh, in in broad strokes, I mean, they believe that this will help people um, and that this is the route such that you can kind of create more um, a sense of democracy and a sense of, of freedom and equality to people um, around the world. And you're bringing economic opportunity and that will make them both more secure, but also more free. I think what we've seen happen is it's very much, that that's very much not how things have played out. Absolutely. So it actually is from a kind of genuine concern. I think that there was a belief in this that this would work, um, and that you kind of you you use the same techniques that are growing the kind of bigger economy um, and doing big scale economic growth in the United States, and you can apply those to kind of how poor work. And in my book, I also look extensively at um, programs like microcredit, um, uh-huh. which the Clintons were really, really, really strong advocates for. Um, and why that, th- those are seen as kind of good solutions for helping um, poor people across the world.
0: Oh, there's so much to talk about there. And uh, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest is uh, Lily Geismer, whose new book is Left Behind, The Democrats' Failed Attempt to Solve Inequality. And one thinks of uh, NAFTA. For example, uh, the Clinton and Gore administration was very much into NAFTA, the North American Free Trade Agreement. I was a supporter of it at the time; it made it sounded good to me. But the Tidwell book is Democrats failed attempt to solve inequality. How, what was what were some of the goals of NAFTA, and how did it really work out?
1: Yeah. Well, so one of the things I mean, and that that question of sort of why many people go along, and this goes also to the question of the Democratic Party's and under Clinton's relationship to the labor movement. Um, but I think that the the idea, I mean, so the the thing of how it was an attempt to solve inequality, um, the Clinton administration and um, and sort of the DLC, who was early advocates of NAFTA before the before it was signed in 1994, um, believed that it would um, it would bring more opportunity, um, both to the, um, people in, um, in Mexico. And if we look at just in the kind of North North American context, um, so that there would be more, there would be more kind of chances for trade and economic growth in, in, um, in Mexico, but also in the United States. Um, and that this would be good for, um, for American workers and American consumers. Um, and that's really this idea of kind of that this would actually help would help address kind of issues of, of equal inequality because you'd give more, there'd be more work, work available. And because the cost of goods would be lower. So that would be good for American consumers. Um, And I think what has been played out, I mean, it's a a really critical example of kind of um, the ways in which it's actually done very much the opposite, both in the United States and in, um, and in the global South. Um, And that's, so that's a, a kind of classic way of thinking about it that like, the, and and i think it's not just nafta i mean it, it i think in many ways NAFTA's used the shorthand to think about globalization more broadly and a lot right. of the, the trade agreements that um because it really opens up this new era of kind of trade um of trade agreements um in the in the 90s and so that's been seen um really through, i think throughout the world
0: yeah and as you say people have seen it before it's a you know meet the new boss same as the old boss uh and it it didn't my sense was that there was no environmental there was were fewer environmental regulations and and working uh, condition regulations with regard to nafta and so as it did not solve inequality at all and i know a lot of republicans actually say they believe in trickle down i don't know how people can still believe in it after... There's so much history shows it never works. The '90s was a time of economic boom for a lot of people in the United States. Uh, do you think did, did Clinton and and his you know friends his group did they did they act, did they believe that a strong economy would trickle down to people at lower economic levels? They don't
1: believe in the same the idea of, of trickle down, right. but it's a similar idea that overall growth can, will help will help people um, uh-huh. at various levels of the economy, and also that you can kind of bring in. Um, so, I mean, they have programs like um, like the New Markets Program of kind of um, of treating um, parts of the, like r- rural and poor places in the United States um, as new markets that you uh-huh. can kind of bring investment to. Um, so a lot of it is this idea of kind of pairing up investment, and that goes to public-private partnerships. I mean, I think this question, and this is what many people have, you know, say when they think about the 90s, and I think it's why we have this nostalgia for it, but it was a time of overall prosperity. And so I think that's often this this question of, like, why would you think about inequality in a time when the economy was sure. so good? Um, and that, you know, that would be – that's, I think, how many kind of
0: – who would
1: be called centrist Democrats um, think about this moment – Um, the issue that I have, that I don't know why I think it's, it, it, like, I think that a lot of the the issues, and I think there is this point that in some ways, many, many poor or lower income people were in a better position at the end of the nineties than they were in the beginning because there was, um, there was very low unemployment. Um, but I think a lot of what the policies of that period did, and this is what I sort of look at in the book, is it actually set up a much, much more, um, Um, unstable system um, and Mm. left people much more vulnerable to um, in a much more vulnerable position um, than they were at the beginning of the 90s and where you really see that playing itself out is a decade later um, with the financial crisis Um, and this kind of new in a couple of different ways that this is working one is that you have over the course of the '90s, the removal of a lot of the social safety net um, and this kind of private, if we think about it, it's like the privatizing of the social safety net. So a lot of the kind of places that people turn to when um, when in, when they're in economic need or no longer there. Um, be that um, welfare, housing, um, and a variety of different other kind of and and um, and the the failure to pass um, to pass universal health care. So you have a lot of a lot of this kind of basic um, basic kind of stability is no longer there the other issue is that it actually left people open to um to more predation um and this idea of kind of approaching um poor people as kind of um as a a potential market um without kind of um, other f- mechanisms of regulation um, led to a lot of what we saw play itself out during the, um, during the um, foreclosure crisis. So in those two ways, I think it really did contribute to this kind of not just a failure to solve the problem of inequality, but also the, this issue of sort of exacerbating inequality.
0: Well, that is n- not usually on the Democrats' uh, publicized agenda to to exacerbate inequality. And it does kind of make me wonder about a long time ago, the Midwest, the less densely populated parts of the country, oftentimes were traditional Democrats. Fast forward to 2016, they abandoned the Democratic Party with enthusiasm. And I, I-, I wonder... How much, if anything, the this Clinton economic strategy uh, had to do with, uh, I mean, part of the idea for Democrats is to win, you know, and they didn't win, and that particular segment of society seems really turned off to to the Democratic Party. They feel left behind. W- were your thoughts about how, if at all, that situation may be connected to uh, the Clinton effect on the party? Yeah,
1: absolutely. I think that it was, I mean, I think there's a, this longstanding focus. I mean, so that there are these ways and, and you know, my, that's the title of my book of left behind and the Clinton's often, the Clinton administration often talked about this idea of not leaving people behind or helping those people left behind by the new economy, who would be the kind of people in the middle, in the, the kind of Midwest that you're, you're discussing. Um, I think that there was by the to the late 2000, I mean late 2008 and beyond, there was a real sense that like these are not the, these programs are not helping us, and all of these promises are just not are not coming through, and so I think it led to sort of intense alienation, alienation um, from large swaths of people who are traditionally Democratic voters, and is be it if they. Um, decided to shift over and vote for Republicans, or if they decided to just not vote at all. And so I think it's had a, it had a huge effect on kind of this idea, and that goes back to the strategy component of it, that um, also there was a sense that I think for many people that, it, that this wing of the party was not, re- was not representing them or speaking to their needs. Mm-hmm. Um, and in many ways, they weren't. I mean, so that's that's part of the issue um, is that when you focus on um, when you focus primarily on like tech and trade and finance um, as okay. the kind of sol- as the sort of solutions. And that's the kind of th- this idea of new o- economic growth, which did lead to the kind of boom of the late 1990s. Um, but it also didn't it, it didn't really address the interests of people, you know, who had. Traditionally manufacturing jobs in um in the Midwest, and I think for since the sort of early nineteen eighties, the Democratic Party has um, to this idea of worker retraining, and that you just sort of retrain like that that like mm-hmm. globalization is an inevitability, um and the solution is in retraining, and I think that there's been um a lot of just that that has just not really panned out in the way that it's, the promises that that it, that it's been. What has been promised to do has not really worked, and so I think by I think by the twenty sixteen and twenty twenty, there's a a large swath of people who sort of recognize that.
0: Yes, I'm afraid so. They, they, yeah, no doubt. I'm sure you're right on that. And part of the uh, Clinton uh, wing of the party, the the strength was fundraising. Let's face it, it cost. At least a zillion dollars to run for president, and it's oftentimes hard to come by that money. Working people in the Midwest, they don't have the money, but the uh, people, you know, on Wall Street and obvious places like that, have money. And Hillary Clinton was known for going to big, expensive fundraising affairs, uh, and and that was an image that went out there. And it, I think it further alienated uh, people in the less densely populated areas. How much of the Clintonizing of the party was that focus on great fundraising yields? And let me add, they never saw Bernie Sanders' approach coming, where it was lots of people across the Internet. You know, the only—go ahead.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, I, well, I think actually, I mean, they they should have seen it coming because I think that you can see precursors to that in things like Howard Dean's campaign. Um, and so, and, and I mean, Obama did both to some degree. So, um, so I think Bernie Sanders has definitely, um, you know, it, it was much, it has been much stronger, but there are actually precursors to that approach. Um, I, I mean, I think there's this idea that they were doing a lot of stuff for fundraising, and I think it was actually really critical to their campaign, and also sort of develop developing these relationships. And so I look at the book, especially especially the relationship with Silicon Valley, and the tightening of those ideas, and the sort of this this sort of celebration of entrepreneurship and entrepreneurial growth, um, as kind of critical to the economy, which I think also Obama really kind of. Um, uh, furthered as well. Um, in faith safe and kind of entrepreneurship. And you saw the famous kind of like these, these big splashy events with people like Mark Zuckerberg that Obama, um, orchestrated. And that did contribute to kind of uh, fundraising. Um, and I think a lot of the kind of optics that, um, it's both in terms of like gaining money, but also the that like, it had really powerful optics yeah. that I think has created, um, intense, um, blowback in opposition um, amongst many people. And I think that the Bernie Sanders campaign of of um, beginning in 20, um, 2016, you can really, it's really start to see that coming to a head. I think it was even earlier with things like Occupy Wall Street, too, True. that there's many people sort of started to feel like this was not um, – the Democrats were not – the Democrats and also just generally people in power not speaking to their needs.
0: Yeah, and I have found so many youngish people who feel like, oh, the Democratic Party, they're just the party of of the big guys. They're the party of Wall Street. They don't pay attention to me, you know, and they're just kind of giving up. And I see the the Democrats largely, I mean, there's so much data research. It's just beyond my comprehension. But I, I wonder about focusing on suburban moderates. Do they think that by appealing to some center which i don't think really exists and saying as little as possible uh and and not uh threatening or or pushing away anybody uh that that is is the way to win i mean uh, i i you know it does seem that in recognizing that the suburban moderates is is where a lot of the votes are it kind of turns off the working people i think and and uh, does it have to be either or? I, I wonder where that leaves the party as we head into the twenty twenty two election in twenty twenty four.
1: Well, I mean, I think the interesting thing is to a certain can like and I, one of the problems. This goes back to our earlier the earlier question about kind of being candidate to s- presidential specific. And so, I think that one of the things is like someone like Obama was able to kind of capture different kinds of voters. And largely that was through personality. Um, that's yes. not always a good, a stable solution. Yeah, and really. I think that one of the things that's happened um, with the question of kind of the, where the party's focus has gone. And this is one thing I, I have a lot of concern about sort of going into 2022 and 2024 um, is that this question of sort of focusing on suburban moderates um, was what the DLC, you know, Um, advocated for um, for much of the kind of in the 90s and it worked under Clinton. Um, Obama used that strategy too, but also sort of had because of his kind of um, personal story and kind of I think rhetoric was able to appeal to other kinds of voters as well. But I think what happened under Trump Um, is that you start to see all these moderate suburbanites who are frustrated or alienated with the Republican Party who are able to be captured. And these are people who are like, I I always, because my first book was about suburban voters um, or suburban liberals, is that they're one of the reasons they hold so much power is that they consistently vote Mm -hmm. Um, and in tight elections um, that matters. So you kind of tailor to these particular voters. But I think the problem to your, the question is that this is not a way to build um, a stable coalition Or to kind of, if you're trying to tailor, the other issue is about policy. And if you're trying to kind of then kind of make those become the kind of base of how to envision policy solutions, you don't actually lead to progressive policies. Um, And so I have real concerns right now about the the kind of in this fear of losing the midterms, um, the party is going to turn back to that strategy um, and then we'll further alienate other kinds of voters, um, <laughs> or sort of building a stable co- from building a stable coalition. Um, the thing that gives me hope, however, on the other side is that <laughs> I think there's been this, this powerful resurgence of the labor movement um, and other grassroots groups. And I think the other difference of the '90s to the '2000s is you don't have the kind of progressive um, a unified or uh, it's not totally unified right now a more unified um, or stronger voice on the left pushing back. Um, And I think that was something that was really absent in the 90s was this kind of unified opposition. Um, And that to me gives hope that the that will that will um, lead the Democrats to to hopefully coming to a more progressive both strategy and progressive policy um, approach.
0: I also think it's a way to win. You got to fire people up if they're bored and and unattractive and and you know turn away yawning when uh, the candidates are speaking. That that's not a good way to win. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is keeping democracy alive and our guest today Lily Geismer, very interesting new book Left Behind the Democrats Failed Attempt to Solve Inequality. And and as you say, okay, the moderate suburbanites, they vote It makes it an easier win, and there are short-term electoral results from that, positive. But the long-term consequences of making that the center of your electoral strategy uh, are a little bit uh, concerning to you. What are those consequences, do you think?
1: Well, I think you don't – I mean, I think you continue – you miss opportunities to create more – I guess I mean more meaningful policies and and, and bigger policies um, and kind of coming up with the kind of I mean the demo, the DLC um, and the kind of new Democrats have you know for years sort of opposed government solutions but I think one thing that's been proven over and over again in this particular moment sort of with the, I think this is one thing the pandemic itself has brought into really sharp focus is that you actually need um, the, the government the private sector cannot fulfill do the work of what government needs to do. And you need big kinds of government approaches. Um, and so the kinds of things I think that we're in something like build back better, um, which has now been kind of abandoned and, um, and other, and a lot of the other kinds of things of the more sort of progressive agenda, if you've got the green new deal or other kinds of approaches. So I think the fear is that those are the types of things that turn off many, um, many moderate suburbanites, not all the pieces of it. I think there are pieces of those agendas that, um, that, many moderates for when I, you know, and I don't want to speak for this huge unified group, but a um, huge, huge group as having one position, but some yeah. of those things actually are appealing. But I think the fear of kind of, um, of it as a kind of, this big kind of new agenda has been kind of alienating. And that's the kind of thing where you abandon those types of policies.
0: And you talked a little bit about, uh, you know, back in the nineties, there was no push from the left and you know Americans for, For many years, have uh, Democrats have been anti-war, and one of my favorite candidates, George McGovern, who I think would have made a terrific president, investing in our infrastructure in so many ways. Anyway, uh, he was obviously for ending the war in Vietnam, and many wars have been started by Democratic presidents, not all of them. And anti-war sentiment has been there. There have been millions of us in the streets for various causes have peace people, anti-war people come to just accept powerlessness and isn't that a lot of numbers to just take out of the equation? Maybe it's it's just absolutely not on the on the screen at all. There are people on the right like Senator Rand Paul and others who seek to curtail uh, American military adventurism. Even Trump spoke about such things. Is that and is that any kind of strength from the left or is it not even relevant anymore.
1: I mean, I think it emerges at particular moments, and I think part of the problem is the ways that, I think the, the issue is that, is that and, and I, you know, I, um, teaching American history, I mean, looking at the, um, both the, the anti-war movements around a variety of different things, I mean, are a really powerful force. And so the anti, like thinking about the effects of the anti-Vietnam movement, the anti-war movement during the Vietnam War, but also all the other issues that movement came to encompass um, is a really critical case study and sort of thinking about that question i think part of the issue is probably that we're sort of fighting these forever wars and it's really right. hard to kind of maintain a movement um in opposition when it's kind of this on this sort of ongoing sort of sense of kind of um just i mean it's hard it's hard to kind of pinpoint it and that's part of that's part of the problem i think absolutely like if, if that was gal- i mean if you can galvanize that that's an issue and i think that's an issue that you're right transcends um is one that can transcend kind of a lot of different. Um, ideally polarization or different types of groups around. Um, And so that's, um, that's really important. And I should say, and it's not to say that I think during the 1990s, there was opposition around particular issues. It was just not a unified movement. So, and I think that's part of the, that like, that's part of what happened Um, so that there was lots of push, you know, there were people who were opposed to and was opposed to NAFTA, you have, um, you have um, welfare rights groups and, yes. um, and feminist groups opposed to welfare reform. So there's, there, there were issues that people were upset about. I think it's and a very powerful anti-sweatshop movement, too. Um, it just was not ever kind of coalesced into a unified, a sense of kind of a unified um, movement of solidarity.
0: That's for sure. And I don't really see that now. And, of course, one of the uh, great American philosophers, Will Rogers, said, I'm not a member of any organized party. I'm a Democrat. You know, it just.
1: Yeah, well, I think that's a huge issue, too. And that's sort of central to the that has been sort of central to the strength at certain moments. And I, and I think I think Michael Cason's book looks at this um, in great detail. And that's in many ways has been what's kind of propelled the Democrats for so long. But it's at the same time, it's been one of their the key limitations.
0: As we approach the fall, the expectations, I, I Tend to be optimistic, but as time goes on, it's kind of getting eroded. <laughs> My optimism for this fall—the expectations are—we're going to get blown out of the water. It's probably too late to change that now, but I must ask: in your opinion, uh, Lily Geismer, do you think is the party learning what it needs to from the failures of the uh, Democratic Leadership Council Clinton approach? Uh, are we starting to get it, please?
1: <laughs> um, I mean, I think to some degree, I, I think you don't see the Demo- Democrats or, under Biden promoting some of the same kind of like, real kind of market-based um, thinking that um, that Clinton became so sort of iconic and uh, central foreign some what the opposition came from. And I think there is a kind of turn towards that those are not the economic solutions that the country needs right now. Um, so it's not, so I think that there is, I do have hope that that has, is some of the lesson that has been learned. I think that it's been, you know, it's been heartening to me, um, to hear some of the ways that issues of racial justice have been incorporated into the, the party's um, agenda. Um, things like housing are on the table for the first time, um, that they happen in like a generation. Um, but at the same time, you also saw Biden kind of re- re- promote like refund the police um, in the um, State of the Union. So I go I have some cautious optimism, Mm -hmm. but then also some um, some cause for concern.
0: Yeah, for sure. And uh, I I do wonder about uh, young people. And, you know, this culture war thing, the Republicans got it nailed. They apply the culture war to everything. It's about, you know, strong masculinity. And the Democrats you know, there are issues like uh, equal rights for, for different genders uh, and, uh, you know, and the young people get this, absolutely. But uh, the Democrats failing to pick up on on the culture war, I'm concerned that even though it has nothing really to do with government, that this, you know, that fearful, hateful uh, attack from the right on on welcoming different cultures uh, is going unanswered by Democrats. Is this something that we should be afraid of and not dare pick up, or what do you think, really?
1: Huh. Well, I think oftentimes it's a strategy that um, that Republicans and conservatives use um, when they don't have sound. Um, economic solutions, um, and it can't offer another alternative. And so I think that that's where the Democrats' the solutions lie. I mean, I think when you look back historically at moments when there have been, I mean, so also in the early 1990s, there was huge, um, I mean, there's a, there was a whole other set of cultural war arguments, especially when you see like kind of with the real clear parallels around history standards and all that kind of stuff. Um, and so I think it becomes something that's used as a kind of distraction tactic. Um, and so I think that the solution for Democrats is to kind of come up with um, with economic, an economic agenda uh-huh. that is more welcoming to various different types of, um, to, of to people, it makes them understand where they're going to kind of through that, through those kinds of mechanisms, are going to get um, the kind of support and recognition that they deserve.
0: Yeah, so we can't fall into the trap that those bad guys are setting up for us. Fascinating discussion. <laughs> uh, very, very interesting. The book is called Left Behind The Democrats' Failed Attempt to Solve Inequality. Our our guest today is Lily Geismer. We're going to have a picture of the book up on the uh, uh, page at Keeping Democracy Alive. Thank you so much for being with us today.
1: Oh, thank you so much. Um, I really enjoyed it.
0: Yes, did I. Thank you.